Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Good afternoon, Greg. Uh, Jeff Miller in for the vacationing Scott Luton. Greg White, welcome to Supply Chain Now. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing great. It's good. Hey, it's good to be back home again. I'll bet. I'll bet. <laughs> welcome today to today's live stream. Greg, it was, must have been a blast out in Wichita. Enjoyed seeing the pictures, the LinkedIn posts. Uh, uh, must have been a fantastic visit to Groover Labs and to Wichita State. Yeah, it was. I have seen the future of supply chain in Wichita, and it is good. So they're making a That's big right. commitment to both technology and supply chain at Groover Labs and at Wichita State. So it's going to be really, really interesting. They're building an entire digital transformation campus uh, or campus building, and supply chain is a big, big part of that. So got to talk to the president for the first time, not apologizing for something, Jeff. So... That's a surprise, but yeah, always always good to talk to administration <laughs> and not be apologizing. <laughs> Something of which you have a balanced scorecard, I suppose. You could say that. Yes, that would be a fair <laughs> fair assessment. So, well, welcome. Hey, it's good to see you, Scott. Of course, the boss is off on vacation, and so here we are. Fun. Here we are holding down the fort, Jeff. So, well, thanks I, for I, uh, I'll, I'll do my best. I, I appreciate Scott. Uh, Giving me uh, the, the chance, to, the reins. I, I hope he is enjoying his well-deserved vacation. And uh, let's see what uh, mischief you and I can get into uh, today. Looking forward to it, Greg. Yeah, likewise. Let's, let's say hello to some uh, of our guests here and participants. Um, David, hello from the road. So David's on Ooh. the road traveling. Good to have you here. Yeah, I wonder where he is. Let's hear about maybe it. Maybe he'll tell us. All right. Peter, good afternoon. Good to see you. Uh, hello, Sushil. See, we got a few new folks here. Yeah, Jeff. we do. I'm looking at. We them. must yeah, be we here are. just to see you, Mohib. So, uh, same same comments to you, Mohib. It was great to see you. You look like you were having a ball uh, with, with Greg and the folks at Wichita State. Yes, yes, yes. We know you're a shocker. We got it. <laughs> hey, he did a great job putting this together. So we met with um, NIAR, uh, which is an aviation research institute there on campus. We did a great campus tour with Rob Gerlach, who's the VP of innovation tech and what do I want to say? Anyway, getting getting tech into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, and Deb Franklin gave us a great tour of NIAR and uh, Kurt from Groover joined us. It's, it's a really amazing facility. In fact, with your, with your knowledge of AR and VR and all of that sort of thing. I think you would have really, really enjoyed it. We got to play in a VR environment inside an aircraft, virtually inside. It's pretty cool. Well, you know, what struck me when I, when I saw this, and, and we'll get back into uh, welcoming our, our guests here in just a second, the participants, is is there's such a, a strong core capability in aviation, which in many areas has for decades led the way right. uh, in model-based engineering, model-based design, and uh, it's just... I think this is a consequence of being in that in that location, right? The world capital, world air capital. It is for a reason. So, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, no doubt. Hi, Memory. Nice to see you today. Glad you're here. 
And I'd like to welcome a special first time, first time participant um, from this side of the screen, a gentleman named Scott Luton. Pana Vidra, I'm going to have to look look that up and see. Uh, I, so, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering, Jeff, if he's talking about our mischief or his, because I, oh. he's at the beach, and I saw that he already has his canopy up, and I, yeah, I saw that. So, like, perfect he may be getting his buzz on in a couple of ways. So, exactly, and I hope that he is. He's definitely earned it. Earned it, absolutely, absolutely. So glad, glad you dialed in, Greg. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Sheldon Rose, good morning. I hope you're doing well today. Yeah. Good to have you back. Nick, we haven't done anything yet, so thanks for loving this today. We're glad that you are. <laughs> so hopefully we'll retain that over the next uh, hour or so. So Yeah. Well, I want to do a couple of things here um, right, up, right up front. So uh, a couple of calendar and scheduling items. I, I am really looking forward to this. I, I'm a huge follower of Kevin and the work he's doing now with Digital Transformers. And I think this webinar with uh, Dr. Swink and Nick uh, from Esker, this is going to be a fantastic uh, webinar. I'm looking forward to it because I think we're only now uh, beginning to scratch the surface uh, on what digital transformation can do for the supply chain. In a lot of quarters, digital transformation is becoming a little bit thread-worn. It's there's a little bit of digital transformation fatigue, but I don't see it here. And I think uh, there's so much that we can do at uh, comparatively low risks and low costs and rapid returns. And uh, every week, uh, Kevin's got something going on. And this webinar, I think, is going to be a fantastic addition to make us all think of opportunities that uh, we can capitalize on. I think you're right. I mean, you know, there, there's a difference between saying digital transformation and doing it. And folks like Kevin, um, you know, they really actually get it done. And I think we have to acknowledge that digital transformation is not moving from spreadsheets to tech or electronic spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. It's it's really um, defining your business in a new way and enabling it with technology and then guide even guiding processes with technology. So it's it's a holistic transformation, really. Um, but digital is at the core of it. Absolutely. Yep. I'm, I'm fond of saying, and I guess sometimes we date ourselves when we say things like this, but I'm, I'm of a career generation where we couldn't do some of the things that now today are table sticks. We wanted to, we knew what we wanted to do and try to accomplish, but the technologies were either prohibitive uh, or didn't exist. And to see now this, uh, this rapid uh, acceleration of technologies and their valuable application, that's to me the key. It's getting stuff done. And so this will be a good webinar. Looking forward to it. So Let me share real quickly, you must uh, be a Gen Xer because I, I think our entire generation has kind of felt that way. We always felt yeah. like there was a new and better way to do it. Technology wasn't quite there. I think a lot of people in our generation pushed it that direction. Mm -hmm. um, and we're starting to see the fruits of our labors. And it's good. It's really good for business. And, you know, again, Kevin um, driving so much change. Yeah, you know, so true. From so many angles. He works with so many companies. It's incredible. The second thing I'd make sure you have this on your calendar uh, is Laura Cesari's annual conclave of uh, this is an invitation only uh, thing of uh, supply chain innovators. And uh, Supply Chain Now is the exclusive virtual host. So put this in your diaries. It's out of ways. It's in September, but um, you know Laura Cesari well. You know her leadership over the last 20 years in, through Supply Chain Insights for Business. Uh, she is a must-listen to, must-see kind of individual in terms of her perspectives on the industry. 
And this uh, conclave, for lack of a better term, is, is her annual meeting. And uh, more details to come, but uh, make sure you put this down in your diary, and you'll hear more about it in the coming weeks. This is an exciting thing for us here at Supply Chain Now, and uh, uh, we think it'll be very valuable uh, to us and to all you who are participating. Greg? Yeah, she always... She always gets together the, the best practitioners in the industry. It's a pitch-free environment. You won't have to endure a pitch from a service provider or technology provider like me. Um, but you will get a ton of incredibly valuable information, be able to uh, communicate with and, and actually network with peers, get some great ideas, and see the reality of you know, as we talked about, like with digital transformation, see the reality of what's being said versus what's being done and how Laura and her team are pressing organizations to do more than to say more. And that's what's so valuable. And you can save yourself three or four thousand dollars by by watching it via the um, the live stream. If If you can't get there or, you know, can't get that kind of budget for airfare and hotel and all of that, it's a great opportunity to get engaged here and learn a ton from practicing professionals. Absolutely. A couple more uh, welcomes. Uh, I wanted to catch this one from Mohib. Um, 3,300 plus views on the post. And there's a link there for more information. So uh, again, fantastic uh, event there, both uh, at the Groover Labs and at the campus. And uh, I know, uh, I imagine, Mohib, you're probably, your feet haven't touched the ground yet, so. You would be hard-pressed to find a more dedicated shocker than Mohib, for sure. Um, and I really <laughs> I enjoyed that. spending the afternoon with him. I'm sure, I'm sure. All right, well, let's jump into uh, the buzz. What, what's happening uh, in the last seven days? And uh, I think there's some interesting things that are going on here. This one caught my eye, Greg. Um, CBRE, of course, uh, is a well-known uh, real estate investor, operator, commercial properties. And uh, they just issued a report that uh, we're going to need 300 million square feet of warehouse capacity in the next uh, three years or so, four years, arguably, uh, to meet growing demand of e-commerce. And um, this struck me as interesting because it's, it's a significant rise, 26%. Uh, worldwide, it's, uh, it's a notable component. It's a billion and a half square feet so-called a, a warehouse space worldwide. What, what caught me, though, in particular, was that they're talking about omni-channel. So it's not just traditional distribution centers. And that provokes a whole different line of thinking in my mind. If, if they're saying we need this much more fulfillment uh, warehouse space for purposes of fulfillment, I wonder, what does this mean to continuing efficiency improvements uh, in distribution and logistics? That's just an enormous addition to what we already have. And it's largely going to have to be constructed, especially for these omni-channel facilities uh, requirements. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, the immediate thought was 330 million. That was exactly what went, went through my head. And I thought there has to be some alternative. And unfortunately, fortunately, there is. Because the, in an omni-channel or, or e-fulfillment facility, about 75% of the, of the square footage is wasted. And there are now all these automated retrieval and storage storage and retrieval systems out there that can make it much, much more efficient. So I'm hopeful that instead of buying more real estate, companies buy more, more productive and, and more uh, accurate picking systems like these automated storage and retrieval systems and 
reduce the amount of space. This is probably a little bit of hopefulness, Jeff, on the part of CBRE and other commercial real estate agents because they make more by selling more square feet. But there is no doubt that we need more fulfillment facilities. I mean, Amazon has since 2014 been building out a global network of fulfillment facilities and they're not slowing down. In fact, they are accelerating to do so. But I think things like there's companies called, I think one's called Cardex and there's Auto Store and there are other solutions out there that can literally make 100% of the space act, uh, um, usable for picking and sorting. So hopefully we use some some automation that reduces the amount of footprint that these these plants or these these fulfillment facilities require and increases the throughput and accuracy at the same time. I think that's the key. And that was uh, was what I found missing in in the article. And I think you're you're right. These CBRE certainly has a, a perspective based on what it does for a living, so to speak. But there are a lot of companies now that are applying uh, route management, as we know, inside the right. four walls. It really sophisticated versions of that that create more, much more dense uh, cubing and much more dense uh, ability to uh, retrieve and package. And it just seemed like this uh, ignores it because those gains. And I don't have the name of the company in front of me. It's a uh, Swiss Swiss something that is involved in these retrieval systems, uh, small robots, and um, now some level of automated pack as well as automated pick. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about improvements in the 10% year over year as a starting point for efficient uh, operations. And I wonder if that's factored here. Uh, this also kind of influences where you where you place DCs and and what the whether they're truly omni-channel and who's actually being fulfilled. I think that's going to drive a lot of the need for the technology you're talking about. Traditional pick and pack operates one way. This seems much uh, the need is much different now. So yeah, and I think I you know another thing that I think. I'm an old retailer, Jeff, so I feel um, I feel free to say this. We retailers need to recognize that we're great at merchandising, product development, product selection, marketing. We're not great at logistics and supply chain. And one of the things that we can do to be both more effective, both more cost effective and reduce the amount of wasted space in these kind of facilities is to go through specialist type organizations, 3PLs or you know, e-fulfillment, uh, you know, they, they have e-forward distributors, all, all sorts of, you know, whatever, whatever um, it takes, whatever the, you know, uh, shape it takes in a particular marketplace. But I think that that will create a lot of efficiency that will eliminate a lot of unnecessary real estate space. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and you can see it happening as new retailers, new direct to con- consumer retailers and new um mass retailers come online, they are going directly to those kinds of solutions because they recognize what they're really, really good at. Sure. sure. And, you know, like anything, the pendulum will swing back to self-fulfillment at some point. It, un, uh, you know, unavoidably does. But um, I think if we recognize what our real gifts are, we can we can consolidate our goods with the neighbor's goods and have somebody else help us get those to the consumer. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I'd, I'd look for. Uh, please weigh in here. What are you seeing in the market? Yeah, Peter. Thank you. At Air Canada, we had a robot retrieval system installed in 1995, and uh, Mini and Maxi loads. So uh, he says it saved us thousands of square feet of warehouse space. Exactly to your point. 
Mm-hmm. That uh, when these, and this is of course uh, many generations uh, older technology back in the nineties, but it made a difference then, uh, especially in in critical parts of fulfillment, like uh, a, you know field availability services kind of a thing in aviation. Of course, that's that's critical. AOGs, aircrafts on ground, and, and so forth being something to be avoided. So these, I'm sure, paid for themselves very very quickly. Yeah, there there have been so many of these efficiencies. I think finally technology has caught up to allow us to democratize it somewhat, right? I mean, you had to be a big airline to or or a big organization to be able to afford it, but now it's sort of an every person's type solution. So let's move to the next story because on the one hand, we see a, a, a perspective taken by CBRE and maybe some others that we're going to need to see growth, and then we see. That, and this is a, not, a, not a new topic for you, Greg. Uh, tell me what you really think about this. Uh, <laughs> there's an article in uh, the Logistics Report uh, from Jennifer Smith talking about, again, uh, the regionals, these small, yeah. uh, small companies and what they're doing. And it was, uh, it's, it's not exactly top-line news, but, it, again, it caught my eye because these companies, uh, the, the laser ships, uh, for example, they're growing on the basis of expansion. So, if you take the the pizza metaphor, they're not stealing somebody else's slice of pizza. They're just uh, partaking of the expanded pizza, if you will. And the growth here is such that uh, these companies are saying they're able to see profitability when they enter a new region within a small number of months. And I just think that mm. if you think about the infrastructure that gets set up, if you're going to be a regional package carrier and distributor or do a last mile where you're picking up from somebody else, in either case, there's infrastructure, hiring, assets, and so forth. And to be able to become profitable this quickly is uh, notable. I think this is a, continues to be a, a consequence of the bigs being sold out, largely capacity. Need, none of the big three are saying they're going to take on new major shippers between now and the end of the year. And in fact, in the article, LaserShip said it also, in some of its markets, is not taking on any new shippers between now and wow. the end of the year. Its capacity is committed. But again, it just struck me that uh, there's room for growth in this industry. And I, I think, Greg, in the past, you've, you've said, look, this is a there will be more coming, yeah. more, more, more participants coming. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, obviously that the bigs, as you call them, I love that, Jeff, by the way, the bigs have decided to stand their ground and, in fact, take advantage of their advantage position and up rates. And basically, even the new CEO at UPS issued her let them eat cake statement, um, you know, to those who who uh, feel put out by the, uh, the, the increase in fees and of course when you you know when you take that stance and you decide to service a limited amount of of companies and you do so at a premium price there's always opportunity and as you said and i can't remember who you said said it first death comes from below right so Andy grove and uh, ceo of intel Andy grove that's right so um you know and i'm not sure that this is necessarily a threat because these are markets and customers that the bigs have have uh, chosen not to do business with, but it's a great opportunity. It creates a great foothold. And even and if the bigs decide to get into this business, it creates a great acquisition path for these companies, right? And I'm encouraged. Honestly, I missed the part where they are profitable in a relatively short time because with all of the fees that are added on by UPS and FedEx and, and the like, I was beginning to wonder whether it's... Un- it's unfeasible to do um, ship to consumer at the level that we're doing it, or if 
the bigs were really just taking advantage of their market position. It sounds like it's the latter, which is encouraging because if we can get stuff shipped for less to the consumer, then that means e-commerce remain e-commerce and direct to consumer commerce remains feasible. And that's an important part of our economy, obviously, and growing at a rapid rate as we go into the future. So it's encouraging to see that you can make money without charging these exorbitant fees. The question, one of among many questions that it raises in, in my mind is what do the distribution networks look like when you have a company like Lone Star Overnight, which had been operating only in Texas and Oklahoma, and now it's Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, Illinois, and Kansas. And if they penetrate those markets to the same level that they penetrated the Texas market, does that have a fundamental effect on where companies uh, place distribution centers, where retailers decide to position their goods? Yeah. These are not independent of one another. And I'm a, I'm a student of networks and wondering how these parts all come together. Because in the, in the big economic picture, you'd, you'd want to know what the fulfillment capabilities up all the way to last mile look like in certain areas, not just in the big air, big municipalities, but population centers uh, you know, in the second and third tier away from big municipalities. And what influence will that have on this additional 330 million square feet? It's an interesting question. I don't. I don't think the uh, the CBRE answer is necessarily locked in stone or written in stone. Yeah, uh, I, you know, and interestingly, I had a I had a personal observation of I haven't lived outside of a major city, uh, you know, metropolitan area for a long time. And having been back in Wichita, we were ordering a gift for someone who had done a good deed for us in Wichita. We ordered it on Friday, I believe. And it just arrived on on Sunday or Monday. So today, so I, you know, I guess we we in in big areas we've been insulated from the fact that two day delivery isn't necessarily a reality for everyone for everything. I mean, in in Atlanta, New York, L.A., where you know wherever you can get two day delivery on just about everything, but not everyone can. And this. Someone taking this sort of regional specialty to provide that service is uh, could be that could be yet another method of disruption if we set that same expectation in some of these rural areas or smaller urban areas around the country. Mm-hmm. Larry Long says it's good for the economy where we can match buyers with sellers and perhaps decrease the strain on the bigs. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> let's that's that's good release the strain i like that um yeah and i uh i am wholeheartedly in your camp let's let's decrease more strain on the bigs and give them some opportunity to sit back and reflect a little i don't know that they will but okay we'll give that a Oh, but uh, yeah. tell us what uh, what you you see to folks that are on the on the stream. What are you seeing in uh, in markets that you operate in uh, that your companies that you either buy or buy from sell to? Uh, what are you seeing, and what do you think uh, is going to happen as we see all these different technologies for last mile, different players showing up? I uh, here in the uh, in the area in the Atlanta area, we see uh, LaserShip, we see a handful of others, and we sometimes we see companies that we haven't seen before. So we know there's growing market here. Yeah. It's not just seeing prime prime vans running all over the Atlanta city and suburb areas. So it's, it's definitely dynamic. And uh, I think, like you say, Greg, it's because there's uh, the growth in demand is outstripping the supply in terms of infrastructure and capabilities among UPS, FedEx, DHL. 
Yeah, we just saw a new unicorn anointed uh, bring with a couple of couple or three G's. Um, just took investment, and um, I don't remember exactly the valuation, but more than a billion dollars. So there you go. Them, and you look at a number of these companies participating in, you know, as you talked about, micro fulfillment or regional fulfillment or um, taking taking the bigs head on in last mile. Um, there's all, there are already some significant successes there. So, well, anything that it will serve to improve that and improve omni-channel, I, it used to be as, as I think we all we all have experienced. You order something, and it's uh, designed to either be in store or be uh, to arrive at the store, or you can pay a little more and have it brought to you. And uh, very often, the fulfillment because it was coming out of an in-store fulfillment capability somewhere else didn't work really well. That seems to have improved over the last year. Omni-channel is definitely working much more efficiently and effectively. And if that's where these investments are going to go, that's great. Mm-hmm. Interesting to see what happens over the over the coming year. I can't believe we've been on here this long, and you and I have only agreed something's wrong with the universe, Jeff. Let's. Uh... Well, we got we got a few more stories to go, and the oh, good. So we've got more opportunities. <laughs> yeah, I didn't exactly uh, watch Muay um, Thai or any kind of martial art, but I was prepared for this meeting today with you anyway. So let's go on. <laughs> So continuing kind of in the same theme of what's going on with respect to the movement of goods, this one's a different angle. This is uh, reshoring. Again, another topic we've talked about a lot on The Buzz. Mm-hmm. And we talk about, we have we have uh, other sessions that you talk about it with other guests on, around. And this one is, I'm paying a lot of attention to as well, because I think there was this um, knee jerk might overstate it, but there was a strong reaction uh, during COVID because of the the dire disruptions that occurred. Again, topic well explored by us on, on these uh, on this air. Uh, and we're seeing now that uh, a reputable entity, Thomas Register, Thomas, uh, has done its 2021 manufacturing survey and says it's uh, that 83% of North American manufacturers are going to accomplish some level of reshoring or have committed to, I should say, and for me, the, the notable fact is it's the same question they asked last year when 54% responded in the affirmative. So clearly there's something going on. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of detail uh, yet as to what that looks like when you perhaps have a, a strongly vertical supply chain. Uh, how much of that are you going to reshore, reshore? Or are you, for an example, an assembler of components coming out of the subassembly industry, something that China effectively invented, where you, you build modular things from standardized components? But uh, it, it struck me again that uh, part of the response to fulfillment difficulties, to uh, cycle times, and perhaps the cost as well, is to reshore. And the article, uh, as it talked about the study, said that procurement officials uh, or leaders in procurement are observing, well, let's, let's not get too excited here because that's not without risk. If you have a supply base, an inbound supply chain that can't equally be reshored or cannot have an equal amount of risk removed, uh, doesn't really help you that much. Your fulfillment won't, won't improve. So again, this is kind of an interesting article because nothing operates in isolation from one another. And just saying that 83% of companies and manufacturers in North America saying that they're going to reshore does not automatically mean we're going to see better fulfillment. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think, first of all, I think the hurdles to um, reshoring are dramatic, right? Um, and in fact, I've worked with a company who has who's bringing out a new product and it's a premium jogging stroller that could cost, I don't know, upwards of 1500 bucks. 
And if they were to produce it in the U.S., it would have to be a $2,200 stroller. And, and in doing a survey of their customers, of course, their potential customers, of course, almost no one, I think 2% said that they would they would be able to afford, you know, or, or interested in affording that cost. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a dramatic difference in cost. We have labor issues, not only the cost of labor, but the availability of labor. In fact, we do many articles, as you know, Jeff, where we talk about people are, are staying away from manufacturing jobs in droves um, because of the 3Ds, dark, dirty, and dangerous, that people perceive manufacturing to be. And, um, and of course, even automation is not necessarily the answer because most robotics are built and produced in China, China. right? So um, it's a difficult lift, uh, even, even building in, you know, even in the NAFTA region, Canada is right out, of course, they don't have the, the human capital to do it and the cost would be excessive there as well. But even Mexico, I think, is so much higher in cost than China where a, a, a typical worker makes 13, 10 to $13,000 a year. Um, you, you know, it's hard to compete with that. And then, as you said, so many of the raw materials or componentry parts are are built in China. Even this this stroller, Jogalong, even their stroller, so many of the parts are made in China. They have to be shipped to Taiwan or Vietnam where they're producing, intending to produce, um, to even build it there. So... It's a heavy lift, and you know I wonder how much of this is hand waving because it's a it's a interesting or a hot topic right to to appease either labor or the government or whomever you know mm-hmm. they they wish to wish to uh please with with these statements but it it's going to be very very tough to do it. I think for select products it can be done. Right, and I think for some products it will be government subsidized um, to to do with pharmaceuticals and and national defense type products and those sorts of things. Uh, essentials, as as we talked about, though I think the list of essentials probably should be broadened. But um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very tough. I mean, uh, just opinion wise, what's your thought? I mean, you have to be very close to this topic, I imagine. I think the uh, and I want to grab some comments here in a minute because so people are now weighing weighing in on this. Uh, my perspective is that in North American manufacturing, the reshoring uh, drive is driven more by the outages, the bullwhip effect that we saw consequential to COVID nineteen. Yeah, and it's it's failing to recognize that a reshored supply chain is not automatically the most efficient supply chain from an economic standpoint, as you just said nor is it the most responsive supply chain. That's the paradigm that I think I, I worry has taken hold among leadership, some, many of them in our industry, that reshoring, onshoring equals stabilization, stability, and improvement because they see 10 days of ships sitting outside Long Beach uh, you know, or, or 15 days or, or people bypassing Hamburg because it's just too risky. I think Maersk said that there, there's a moratorium on Hamburg. So I think it's trying to solve the wrong problem rather than, again, it's easy to say this, looking at optimal sourcing or making the economics of product design management such that you could dynamically move things within reason. You can't move raw materials around, 
But certain kinds of manufacturing lend themselves to a level of modularization that make movement of manufacturing from one contract manufacturer to another easier, a lesson that's been known in electronics and high tech for decades. And I wonder if in more assembly-oriented goods, more fabrication-oriented manufacturing, those principles that have served the electronics industry so well uh, could be applied more broadly. And that would, to me, be the offset to this eagerness of reshoring, which may not yield the the, the results that people are looking for. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's also if if the product is produced in any level of volume, it's impossible. It it takes a multitude of com- countries to even approach the workforce that China has. Exactly right. I, I I'd like to see companies moving more towards a uh, diversification of vendors as opposed to diversity, which of course I'm for as well. But diversification of vendors where they have secondary sources or alternate sources for these products. So they're not so sync. Sorry, that's my, uh, my, I got to take this. It's my, my car warranty um, update. Uh, So, uh, so they have secondary sources for uh, these, you know, for these type of products so that when something happens, they've got an alternative to go to. And in many industries, they make a very specific practice of keeping a secondary source on the hook, give them 20% of the business at all times, right? Yep. Yep. So, exactly. that, so that they have the ability to ramp up and they have the motivation to ramp up when you need them to. Yep. I think right. that's a more reasonable approach rather than swinging the pendulum all the way the other direction to reshoring. Exactly. That, that's not, that won't end well. And we'll come back just as right. you said. Peter says, uh, totally agree. Set aside costs to produce. Reshoring will continue to rely on raw materials that are not readily available located within the North American marketplace. Yeah. yeah. Sheldon, last mile is definitely impacted by local network effects and localized demand for service delivery. When you live in these remote areas, the bigs service levels don't apply to you. You want to know <laughs> how locally, how soon can I get my stuff? This leaves the way for local competition, and these guys normally have local knowledge and connections that may be better service. That's a great point, Sheldon. You're well said. Yeah, yeah, well said. That's so true. And that may be the secret sauce to some of these um, regionals uh, that have, uh, in, in terms of making the ROI more, more rapidly, uh, uh, achieving it more rapidly, you get a good reputation. And so then you build a network that says, I'm going to deal with local, local retailers, regional retailers. I've got customer satisfaction scores and successful fill rates that are the envy because as we all know if your package arrives late you don't blame the vent the carrier you kind of blame the retailer who sold it to you and chose that delivery uh right, channel right. so that's absolutely right and i think you know that that's that to me is one of the beauties of small business because a small business a regional carrier um they don't have to, or, or, or you know any regional business they don't have to make the same margins if they're not trying to feed thousands and thousands of shareholders if they're only trying to feed a smaller portion of, of share or stockholders or, or, um, or, you know, their employee base or whatever. So <laughs> got them out of order here. Memory. No, okay. It just shifted when I clicked memory, how sustainable is reshoring when we look at the fact that resources aren't centralized to specific locations. Exactly. You can reshore yeah. regardless of what nation you are and suddenly all the inbound materials just got <clears throat> excuse me, far less efficient from a supply chain standpoint. That's a great point. Yeah. I wonder if that's being considered memory. You know, when companies decide to reshore, are they looking? Because the, the net total landed cost 
might go down in some areas, but from a sustainability standpoint, it might actually be a net negative. That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, that's a double entendre, too. I mean, how sustainable from an economic standpoint is it and how sustainable from a, you know, an ecosystem standpoint is it? I think both of those are great questions. Yep. Peter apparently agrees as well. So, so thank you, Peter. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Aditya. Sheldon, yeah, even large retailers are collaborating with local vendors for the last mile delivery. Large retailers provide the technology maybe to book online and pass the message to locals for delivery. Yeah, we, we do see these models where, and I think there's a, a, an opportunity for significant automation and connectivity. I don't know if this is in the laser ship or the Lone Star model, but um, they certainly should be directly connected to the order management systems of the retailers with whom they contract, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a seamless thing. All right, let's press on. So so move to our next article. And I'm really glad you pulled this one up. We don't talk about this stuff. We don't talk. Yeah. I, and this is something that, uh, you know, as a, as a weekly participant of uh, you and Scott, we, we don't often find opportunities to talk about mergers and acquisitions in the software, enterprise software solution space. Now, arguably, Rockwell Automation is not quite a, a pure play industrial software uh, OEM, but they certainly have a piece of their business that is. This one caught my eye, and it's it's kind of tied in with the other stories today because uh, Rockwell Automation, uh, a world-leading provider of industrial automation, hardware, and software solutions, just bought Plex Systems. And um, Plex, I, I think, arguably is not quite as well-known as Rockwell Automation, but they've been in the ERP, MES, factory visibility, and supply chain visibility game for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And they're one of the few companies that has got an up and running and has had for some time cloud platform in these areas. And this one caught my eye because this to me signals Rockwell Automation's belief that there's a lot more connecting to be done between signals coming out of a factory. And, and by the way, Rockwell Automation's taking these factory signaling capabilities, not just SCADA and PLC, but the, the visibility that comes to how a machine is performing in a factory and extending this out into the supply chain for fielded assets, but also for where's my stuff kinds of questions and warehouse operations. Now, they're sticking to the knitting. They're a information-oriented and hardware-to-get-information-oriented kind of company. But to me, the acquisition of Plex signals, we think there's a lot more we could be doing with supply chain signaling around uh, using it effectively. Uh, I think this is an area that, that Laura Ciceri focuses on as well in, in her insights and analysis that for all the strength of the planning technologies we have, the procurement technologies we have, the design engineering and configuration control and design release, digital product management, there's still room to grow, polite way of saying some gaps between the signals coming from the fields and the use of them by these enterprise tools. And that, that's why I thought this would be an interesting one for you and me to chat about and, and get our participants today to also weigh in on. This This to me is a, a bit of a harbinger of potentially things to come. Well, I mean, Plex has been retail focused, or not retail, sorry, manufacturing focused from the beginning, whereas many of the other ERPs, the SAPs and Oracles and whomever have been um, moving towards retail and distribution in other markets. So their pure play in manufacturing is really, really interesting focus. And I think, you know, Rockwell has so much power in and an impact on the manufacturing space that it's going to be an interesting combination for start. 
Well, it, it is uh, because there's it's mutually beneficial to, bo- to both companies. And uh, the folks that have Rockwell Automation uh, innovation solutions uh, that don't necessarily tie effectively or, or they pay high costs of integration to systems, there may be opportunities where those integrations will become easier. Similarly, companies that own Plex or the, the, that category of software at that size, not in an enterprise Oracle or SAP, may find abilities to connect to not just the factory floor through Rockwell Automation's factory solutions, but other information out in the field. And again, as a supply chain practitioner, this is of interest to me because visibility is king. Everybody talks about it. Right. And yet we and we know how to get the data and high levels of investment are being made in track and trace and visibility. Uh, yet we seem not to always embed those data into decision processes, automated or manual inside the systems that are actually operating the supply chains, the planning, procurement, uh, order release in the factory, warehouse, spare parts, DRP. Uh, we're not we don't seem to incorporate. So that to me is the interesting thing about this acquisition. I don't know that it's the first of its kind. Probably is not, but it's certainly the, one of the more recent ones. That's uh, where you had two companies that were so distinctively identified with particular segments of the industrial marketplace. Yeah, well, Coke bought Infor a year or two ago, whenever that was, and they they had owned a good chunk of it for a while. And Panasonic bought Blue Yonder recently, but those are distinctly different solutions. Um, you know. Um, Blue Yonder largely focused in the retail space, uh, pretty strong since they bought Red Prairie, right? Pretty strong WMS, uh, pretty strong retail uh, planning and forecasting and um, and alignment tools there, but not as strong in manufacturing. And Plex didn't really start as a finance solution, unlike most ERPs, right? It started as a manufacturing floor, shop floor type solution. So they come at it with a greater level of depth of functionality than a lot of solutions. You know, one of my concerns when this happens is, uh, does this become effectively Rockwell's private solution or does it become part of their service offering and it's yet another a uh, company like in the old days when stuff used to just get buried at IBM, right? A company would get purchased by IBM and you'd never hear from them again in, unless you were already an IBM customer and they were you know, now selling it into their customer base. So I, I think all of those things are a possibility, but um, you know, I think this, this, you know, the thing that I like about this is supply chain solutions being valued at this level, mm-hmm. right? $2.2 billion. Of course, they're a huge, uh, Plex is a huge company, but a valuation like that would have been unheard of just months ago, right? A year or so ago, for sure. No, it, so I, I, this, I think what this whole... signals what the market thinks about supply chain tech and that they are thinking about supply chain tech. And they have finally got the message, as you're talking about, that there needs to be more transparency and visibility and and integration between the various aspects of the business to make the supply chain work. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. I, I don't don't remember what the multiple was or is, uh, but it's it's significant. So there there is some of that as well. That the combination here is uh, definitely expected to be uh, it'll it'll be accretive, obviously, to Rockwell Automation. The acquisition will, but uh, Plex will continue to exist as an entity on its own, obviously, for some period of time. 
unless, mm-hmm. like you said, to your, your point about companies that buy and internalize, um, they, if they do that, of course, it changes. But uh, they're they're a profitable company, and I think this is a good growth signal for them as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry for the alphabet soup here. MES, manufacturing execution systems, basically the the software solutions that control the operation of the factory floor when an order is dispatched. So that's the uh, and they pick up data uh, from programmable logic controllers and SCADA stands for supervisory control and data acquisition. These are the OT piece of ITOT operations technology. So Mohib, thank you for that question. I should have, should have made that clear. It is supply chain is nothing if it's not alphabet soup, right? So ac- acronym rich environment. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, I see others uh, answered it as well. Ramesh, thank you for answering. So. Um, anyway, just it, it just seems to me that these stories today, uh, as we were looking at the headlines, and uh, uh, some of them seem to deal with uh, more with logistics, uh, others more with commercial opportunity, and it just seemed that these these kind of hung together. You've got uh, the, the bigs saying the capacity, we're at capacity, we're not going to pick up anybody new, and the regionals are able to grow. At the same time, you've got the real estate investment and operations companies saying we need more space. Which begs the question: Do we really? And what's going to? What are the impacts of technology there? Uh, and then you've got companies that are doing technology acquisitions that could also have an effect on this. So uh, this, for me, was uh, kind of the logistics and infrastructure week. So, well, I think it's you know really the breadth of these stories really signals the complexity of supply chain. Right? You have physical, you have movement, you have technology issues, and of course you have the logistical issues of how do we put all these things together and how do we optimize for this risk balancing exercise, Jeff? I think, you know, we've, we grew up in an era when supply chain was considered a necessary evil, a cost saving exercise. And now companies are finally starting to realize that, that their supply chain, the most important thing that I've been saying, uh, sorry, I have been saying this for the last few weeks and the most important thing that supply chain delivers is your brand identity because you have one job right get the products to the customers that want them when they want them right so um you have to deal with all this incredible complexity and instead of looking at it as a cost saving exercise you have to recognize it as a risk balancing exercise because there are so many risks right The, the way that i was taught supply chain uh, by a founder of a company I worked for was assume everyone will fail you and make an alternate plan for that, right? Um, cost is just one just one more risk, right? Brand identity is a risk. Logistics and, and transportation and lead time and, and order frequency and availability of goods, all of those things are risks to be managed. The availability of space to continue to distribute, right? The availability of delivery services to be able to get it to to the customer in the end and um, it's a uh, it's a combinatorial analytics alphabet soup wow <laughs> something like that right because it is such a complex a, a complex problem that you solve and you have to be looking out for where someone or something or some aspect of the of the chain could fail yeah at all times. Uh, clearly, there's something in the water supply out at Wichita State University because you've obviously come back a heck of a lot smarter than you sounded uh, a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, 
I, I just talked to somebody who said that their favorite thing about about supply chain and why they were happy to be an investor was combinatorial analytics. So how about that? Get paid by the syllable. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm like you. I was taught early on that supply chain is about risk mitigation. Um, and if you go back to some of the earliest academic work that came out from operations research, and I'm, I am a fanatic about going back to core principles. There are some core timeless principles that inform our, our, our art. Mm-hmm. Our art of supply chain management, and uh, and and risk is is risk mitigation is is the kind of the foundation of everything. Supply chains exist to deliver goods, to move goods, to power industry, and the improvements are always geared toward reducing some risk, hopefully effectively monetizable risk. And this goes back to Lovejoy's law, right? Inventory, mm-hmm. capacity, capability, and information. And generally speaking, information has the lowest total cost of ownership. Of the others, it's expensive to have spinning excess capacity. It's expensive to have inventory that you have to count, move, heat, cool, secure, lose, find, and and so on. So we 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 hold these kinds of things kind of as core principles, and we build technology and, and business solutions around them. That's what makes us so cool, and why after so many years in the business, we I think most of us are still jazz. We can continue to learn. So um, yeah, want to grab yeah. some of your mohi mohi. Uh, Post it um, up here. Okay, Mohib. Right, so we you use the whole alphabet. Yeah, we use the whole alphabet. Uh, warehouse management, MES, supplier relationship management, uh, big MRP and little MRP, right? Independent requirements, independent. So, yeah, I mean, it's exactly right, Mohib. Alphabet soup. And memory weighs in as well. Monetization of risk, absolutely true. Looking at cost savings alone will never be sustainable, particularly in this competitive environment. Absolutely true. Good observation, my memory. Absolutely. Yeah, true. I th- I think that companies have to acknowledge. They have to acknowledge. You know, it was only only a couple of years ago that we were talking about the um, supply chain as a necessary evil. Then it moved to competitive advantage. Now I think people recognize that it's even more than that. It is your brand identity. It is the deliverer of your brand identity. And the more companies that take it from that goal back, the more successful they will be. Certainly. Peter weighs in. Opportunities are limitless for the bold right now. Think to be different. Not much needs to be reinvented. We simply need to leverage what is right in front of us right now. See the forest through the trees. See the big picture, not simply the problem. If only focused on the problem, the true answer is not seen. The voice of experience, Mr. Bolan. Wow. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Spot on. That's a quotable quote. That's a quotable quote. Thank you, Peter. And uh, I, you, um, you speak for me with that statement. That's that's how I feel. Um, excellent, excellent observation. Well, those were the ones we picked, Greg. Um, interesting times. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, the chance to be here with you. I, yeah. uh, I really, I thank Scott and the team uh, for the opportunity to sit in the big chair and bounce You've ideas. Done good. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, on behalf of the whole team here at, at Supply Chain Now, uh, we appreciate you participating in the buzz. Um, Greg, this was great chance to be with you. Uh, we we spent time bouncing ideas around in various venues over various adult beverages, and this was a lot of fun. So uh, thank you for that. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. I, you know, I think um, bringing your, your perspective is really valuable. And you're out there doing it these days, right? Um, trying to, yeah. So, I mean, you're working with companies that are actively trying to improve their their supply chains and their 
their digital platforms and all of that sort of thing. So I'm just curious, as you've been out there in industry, is there anything aside from these stories that jumps out at you that's particularly encouraging or notable? No science experiments, speed to first value and the respect for the value of the digital thread. Again, another buzzword, perhaps buzzword bingo, but there's substance to it. Another concept that um, some may roll their eyes as consultants, but it's got teeth, is the idea of orchestration. And we talk a lot about digital transformation and mm -hmm. that there may be some transformation fatigue. At the end of the day, we're all trying to improve our operations and it requires us to orchestrate data, resources, functions, and, and do it in new ways. And so there's an emerging thinking, and you, and you can see this in some of the uh, leaders in the industry, the thought leaders that are saying, you know, the technologies are there. They've, they're now stable. They've been around for six, seven, eight, sometimes 10 years. Our ability to use them requires us to orchestrate them more effectively. And it truly is that the metaphor of a conductor of an orchestra and the orchestra being comprised of sections of instruments, whether they be manufacturers or logisticians or design operations, the metaphor actually holds really well. So I'm encouraged to see that recognizing the transformation has to be measured in real things getting done. So there's a pragmatism there. And the fact that uh, we recognize you can't do it alone. You're always going to have Amen. trading partners, multiple providers of technology. Anybody who is monolithic and proprietary is walking dead. Strong opinion. Um, those things to me are very encouraging. And, and that's why I believe, Greg, I hope I hope the, our participants and our, our colleagues here think the same way. This is why this industry keeps reinventing itself uh, almost every day. So it's uh, that's what I see happening, and that's what my clients are asking me for: is help me figure out how to use these to solve a business problem and do it pragmatically. I don't have a year; do it now. Right, right, and that's good to see because one of the things that you know we talk we talk every month to. To Laura Ciceri. And one of the yeah. things that we see is so many companies treating this as a science experiment. So it's good to see that there are companies acting right now on, on this change because it's absolutely critical. We have a new, new access to even more robust data than we've ever had in the past. And it's allowed us to review and revise some of our points of view on the standard paradigms and best practices of the past. Because yeah. you know some of those best practices were established based on the presumption of lack of data, for instance. So we can now, with more robust and more available data, we can revise those points of view. And I think that's really, really valuable. So that's good. I'm glad that you're seeing yeah. that out there. Yeah, absolutely are. Absolutely are. Well, Greg, thanks again. On behalf of the uh, Supply Chain Now team, um, I'm Jeff Miller. Greg, delightful to be with you. And I have the honor of uh, saying the closing words that, Greg, uh, that Scott says every week, do good, give forward, and be the change that is needed. Y'all have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you on the next Supply Chain Now livecast. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now.